Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, but not for long, because very soon, in the next 24 hours, I will be boarding my plane to begin my fabulous summer adventure in fabulous Las Vegas, uh, helping me today to bring you the highest quality of poker podcasting is one of the world's foremost poker podcasters and TPE coach and dear friend of mine, Maryland's own Andrew Brokus. Welcome back. Well, my my head is swollen now. Thank you. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm good. I'm already in Las Vegas and have been for over a week, so I'm looking forward to your arrival. Yeah, well, you're the only guy I know that can go to Las Vegas uh, right when all of the extremely exciting summer poker tournament stuff is all starting up and and all the you know the exuberance be it irrational or not is in the air and you can sit down and finish a book you're the only guy i know that can do that under those circumstances so uh congrats on finishing the book (laughs) (laughs) thank you yeah it's um it, it's a distraction for sure and i have got I've, i've played two of the venetian events um one of them, or one day in particular, I was only there for about two hours, so that made it wasn't oh, too much well, of a distraction. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to um, writing. Yeah, I, I have, I, I've not resisted the allure of tournament poker entirely, but I, I think in some ways it's it's probably good for me. I got out here early, knowing that I was going to have this to work on, and I don't think it would really be the best thing for me to just sort of like dive right in and go hard from like the middle of May all the way through July or something like that. So I think, you know, just playing like the occasional tournament here and there and um, being able, I mean, the, the, the book is in many ways less taxing than uh, the tournament poker. There's no coin flips to be lost. And generally when you work on it, you have accomplished something at the end of the day, which is typically not the case in tournament poker. So it's uh, <laughs> it's nice to be able to go back and forth between those things. So true. So true. So uh, what's it like being in Vegas right now? Uh, is the excitement palpable? Um. Not really for me, because I'm just in this like book bubble. Right. <laughs> I have not, you know, it's not like I've been hanging out with the other other poker players all that much. Or it's been a busy time for for coaching too, which is the other thing keeping me busy. You know, both because a lot of my students are people, many of them turned in poker edge members, who are going to be playing some portion of stuff this summer and so want to get coaching in obviously to kind of get their game in tip-top shape before they play some of the the bigger events that they're going to play all year and then also because people know that i'm going to be busy soon you know i have a decent amount of flexibility now but i won't soon so i do kind of encourage people get get the coaching in now so to the extent that i'm exposed to poker player excitement it's it's in that way but it honestly it almost doesn't feel like i'm in las vegas like it's been really it's been like cloudy it's rained all time since i've been here. it was actually a good deal colder like when i left maryland it was like 85 and i think it was like 70 when i landed in las vegas like it's it's really um 
quite a typical uh, climate for for this time of year. Wow, yeah, that's very unusual. Usually by early May, it's quite hot there. So right. I guess, and I know that I'm going to be thinking wistfully of these clouds very soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm an unusual creature in that I really like when it's hot outside. The hotter, the better. So uh, I really, even yeah. like when it gets like 115 out here, you're still you're happy with that? Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I just put on my wow. sunglasses and a light T-shirt, and I'll I'll actually walk to whatever casino I want to I want to go play. So, yeah, I'm a little bit crazy, I guess, but it just doesn't bother me. I'm one of those weird people that you want to punch every time he says, it's a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else is like, shut up. I don't care if it's dry or wet. I hate it. I'm like, yeah, I don't get that. But I will complain all winter. So that's where I stand. I just like it hot. I could live in Cuba except for the oppression. All right. So uh, so what's the title of this brand new exciting book that's coming out? It is called Play Optimal Poker. I like it. Play Optimal Poker. Thanks. I, I kind of wanted um, – a part of me wants to have like a cuter book title, uh, you know, game theory for people who think they don't need game theory or right, something right. like that. But um, the way Amazon works, the, the algorithm just really punishes you for not having a straightforward descriptive title. And you, you have to have poker in, in the title. You know, people, that's what people are going to search for. Obviously, mean, it's like poker strategy. So you need to, I mean, I, I got the word optimal in there to kind of hint that it's a game theory inspired book. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the basic idea of it. I mean, I think a, a better description is uh well, I don't know if it's for people who think they don't need game theory, but it's um, it, it's game theory. It's meant to be a, a, an introduction, a very accessible introduction to game theory, but also a rigorous one. I mean, it's meant to really teach you um, what what does that mean? Why is it relevant to, to poker in particular? Why is it relevant for smaller stakes games? I think a lot of people have the idea that oh, game theory is only something that like really elite players need to worry about, or you only need to worry about this if you're playing against really tough opponents or something like that. And I I just think it's it's a great for anyone who really wants to understand the game as opposed to just imitate, you know, and you can watch this is like one off videos. I mean, and I don't mean to criticize videos, obviously, like Tournament Poker Edge. There's a lot of theory driven stuff on Tournament Poker Edge, some of it from me, some of it from other people. But I think, you know, if, if you're not doing any studying of theory, if all you're doing is watching other people play and try to imitate them, I think that's a tough way to learn because, you're not really grasping the, the why and it's hard to see, you know, like someone might do something different at 60 big blinds and they would do it 30 big blinds or something. And you're not necessarily, you know, you might just think, Oh, you're supposed to raise when you have nine, eight suited under the gun and not realize that like that might change depending on stack sizes. So I think that starting from a theory point or having some kind of grounding in theory is really important if you're interested in being able to think about poker for yourself, which I think that, you know, a lot of people, are and that's certainly my uh, my market niche anyway in the, in the poker coaching and training community yeah absolutely i believe that uh if you want to get good at an instrument you have to learn how to play scales and if you want to become a mathematician you have to learn your multiplication tables so i kind of liken game theory really understanding poker you you need to have the basics and the fundamentals and g you know I do believe that you don't always have to make the GTO play in every situation because that kind of discounts the human element, which particularly mm -hmm. in the live setting is is very, very important. For <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the human beings that are all around you are, are a big uh, factor to consider. But 
you know, I like to think that when I deviate from what PioSolver would suggest I do, it's because I I know what I'm supposed to do according to theory, but in practice I'm making a decision to do something that's technically exploitable for exploitative reasons. So, yes. uh, but if you don't know what what the baseline is, then you don't even know when or why you're deviating from what the solvers would would have figured out is correct. And so, you know, a kind of understanding game theory, I think, is uh, very important and something that I'm always working on. So I'm so excited for your book. Do you kind of agree with that little diatribe I just said? Is that close? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would even want to get away from from language like correct. You know, I like I, I don't think that the purpose of Piosov, not that you're even really making this argument, but um, I, I don't think the purpose of Piosover is to tell you like the, the correct answer. People often say like, well, I know I'm supposed to do this, right, but I'm not going to do it against this player. No, so you're supposed to do the thing that you think is going to have the highest expected value against this you know, real human being that you're you're playing against. Like no one, game theory otherwise, is is telling you something different. Um, so I mean, I, I like to use the word equilibrium to describe um, you know what what would come out of a solver, for instance, to have a sense of like what would the equilibrium strategy be. And what that really means is it's the play that you would make if you didn't know anything about your opponent. This is, I mean, this is something that I find comes up a lot on the tournament poker edge forums that someone will post a hand. And they'll say, okay, here's the spot that I was in, and they're supposed to roll hand history without any sharing any kind of read on an opponent. And then people will respond to that hand, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I can't answer this question until you tell me more about the opponent. Like, who is he aggressive? Does he bluff too much? What does he do? And that I don't think is, I mean, yeah, it's great to have those reads if you have them, and if the person posting the hand has those reads, you know, he he probably should share them. But I mean, you're often in situations in poker, whether it's live poker or online poker, where you know little or nothing about your opponent. You know, they're just a name on a screen. And maybe you can guess something like, well, when I play $10 tournaments on ACR, like most of my opponents play like X. I mean, you can make those kind of broad assumptions about the population sometimes, but you're very often going to be in situations where you don't know much of anything about how your opponent is playing and so you can't really afford to just be lost in those spots and just say well i I have no idea what to do unless i have a read on my opponent like yeah once you have a read of course if you know he bluffs too much then you should probably call on the river and if you think he doesn't bluff very much you should fold on the river that's not hard to figure out the the tricky part is what do you do with a given hand in a given situation when you really have no idea what your opponent's strategy would be and that might be because your opponent is um is unknown to you or it might just be because he's really good you know if you're playing against phil ivy you probably shouldn't be trying to guess whether phil ivy is over bluffing or under bluffing in a, a given situation you should have a sense of of what you would do without a read and then to your point um it, it, when you do have reads and I mean, I have a, a, probably close to half of the book is dedicated to how to play exploitatively, but it's using game theory to find the best exploits. So even mm. when you do have a read, you, I, I still think it's helpful to start by thinking about what would the equilibrium look like? How is my opponent or how do I believe my opponent is deviating from that? Do I think he's bluffing too much or not, not enough? Or, uh, you know, it's not I mean it's not only about bluffing. Do I think he's calling too much or not enough? Thinking about what his deviation is and then thinking about 
how should I change my own strategy in order to maximize my expected value against the mistake that I think he's making? And some of those things are, are obvious and some of them are, are not so obvious. So, you know, if I think that you are not bluffing enough on the river, for instance, you know, the most obvious way to exploit that would be to say, well, I'm just not going to, you know, when I have a bluff catcher and you bet, I'm not going to call you because, <laughs> you know, a bluff catcher. It should be indifferent between calling and folding if you have a perfectly balanced bluffing strategy. And if you're not bluffing enough, then I would prefer to just fold. But there's some like further further back in the country, like earlier decisions that I make might also be influenced by the knowledge that you're not going to bluff on the river. So, for instance, I should be less inclined to check strong hands to you on the river. Like at equilibrium, I might sometimes bet my strong hands to get called by your bluff catchers, but also check my strong hands to induce bluffs from you. But if I think that you're not bluffing enough, then I probably shouldn't be trying to induce bluffs from you, and then I might prefer to, to bet my strong hands more often. I might also want to call more often on the turn because one of the things that were sort of some of my more marginal turn calls, one of the things that's influencing the profitability of calling the turn is the possibility that you're going to bluff the river and push me off of a marginal hand. So if I believe that you're not going to bluff the river as much as you should, that might then make me more inclined to call turn bets with kind of marginal hands. So like once you understand equilibrium and, and how it functions and where it comes from, right, like these numbers coming out of Piosolver are not just, it's not a black box. Like the, the, these numbers come from somewhere. And once you understand where these strategies come from and how they relate to each other, then you can also make some of those more like second order or more sophisticated deviations from equilibrium, not just the real obvious, well, he bluffs too much, so I always call him down. You know, there's there's other ways that you can change your strategy besides just uh, the, the most obvious. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I agree that sometimes the uh, the obvious adjustment is fine. But, yeah, you just pointed out a few things that might not immediately be apparent to everyone. They certainly were not immediately apparent to me, but when you explain them, they make sense, which is why I really enjoy the uh, the series. I've been talking about it for a few weeks now here on the podcast. The, it's the series that you did for TPE about using Piosolver to handle calling ranges from the big blind versus an under-the-gun open and whether which player should uh, continuation bet and, and whether you should defend. Oh, like looking at all the different flop textures? All the different flop textures and going from just those two players – and I like your decision to take just the under-the-gun razor versus the big blind because it really helps to show the, the the more disparate differences. I mean, I feel like if you had used just the button opening range, then that just kind of has the button blind dynamic, which doesn't isolate kind of these board textures and the different problems and solutions that they present in the same yeah, way. Yeah, it's much harder to wrap your head around those those situations. Yeah, yeah, so I really like the way you set that up and you know, of course with with Pio and I think I guess with any solver, you need to have uh, sort of artificial parameters like you can't have infinite possibilities like should I bet 24 blinds or 25 blinds or 26 blinds. <laughs> yeah. You just can't do that. Um, but yeah, watching those videos and I studied them pretty hard which means to me watching them multiple times over and over until I really felt like I was grasping what we were able to glean from the equilibrium solutions that the solver basically spits out and how to apply that to how I might play tomorrow. And you know, to me, there's a, 
sometimes there's a big bridge between understanding the theory and actually applying it to practice. So can you talk a little bit about how to make that bridge a little easier to climb? Yeah, that, that's a really important question. And, and that was really the motivating factor for the book. Um, I mean, and, and I should say also, the book is not really designed. I mean, I, I think people will be better equipped to use a tool like PyoSolver. I mean, they definitely will be better equipped to use a tool like PyoSolver after reading the book if they want to. But that's not like the, the book isn't it's not like a how to use um pio solver pio for dummies right <laughs> right <laughs> um by the way if you but, write that book i'll buy that one too for sure someone should yeah um, <laughs> it, yeah i mean cause the, the problem with a lot of those i mean they're they're incredibly powerful tools solvers but you have to know I mean, like even those parameters that you mentioned, you know, you, you have to restrict the game space in some way. It can't solve No Limit Hold'em. It can solve a game that looks something like No Limit Hold'em, where players are allowed to make bets of certain sizes. So you can tell it you're allowed to bet 25% or 75% of the pot, for instance. And, but you have to know how to set that up in a way that's causing you to not miss important information. Um, boy, the, your question, though, is how to, how to translate from, <laughs> from, from theory into practice. Right. See, I, I think the problem that a lot of people, whether they're actually doing PyoSolver work themselves or they're watching a video or something like that, I, mean, I think part of what makes game theory seem so intimidating is that those solutions look so complicated. You spend, just, you're seeing this huge grid and like every single hand is a mixed strategy. It's like, well, bet ace four suited 36% of the time, bet ace, <laughs> bet ace eight suited 77% of the time. You're like, what, am I supposed to memorize this? Or like how, who could possibly, you know? So I think understanding, um, again, like what, what's the important data there? And, and what I try to do in, in that series is to you know, look at a comparison between flops because the the point is not really like you, you can't practically use PyoSolver to try to memorize a specific situation. I mean, I think that may be what like the Isaac Axons of the world are doing, but for for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of poker players, that's not what you need to be doing, like memorizing a specific situation. What you right. want to be doing, and, and you know what I try to do in the book also is you want to be extracting certain like concepts or, or principles. So the best advice that I ever got about how to use a solver was, you know, treat it the way that a, a scientist uses a microscope. Like it's a it's a tool for conducting an experiment. And so it's useful to, to try to look at, you know, like in, in the video series that you're talking about, how does continuation betting frequency change depending on flop texture? Or how does continuation betting frequency change depending on starting positions? How does it change depending on... Uh, on, on stack depth, right? So you, you can pick some variable and try to isolate it, and then you can run experiments that change just that one variable and keep everything else the same and, and kind of look at how these things change. And so that's the more interesting thing. Rather than seeing um, you know, which hand is 72% of the time and which ones are betting 39% of the time, you want to look at more you know, kind of bigger picture things of, of just in general, like which player is supposed to do most of the betting in this situation and why. That's what's going to be relevant to you as, as a player, right? And no, no one is summering, conjuring up in their head uh, that, that PyoSolver grid and implementing it perfectly. But you're trying to think about what are the decisions that I as a poker player 
often have to make in, in a given situation i have to decide should i be betting a lot or a little or never um should i be check raising and if so what kind of hand tends to be good for check raising should i be check raising strong hands or weak hands or some combination of both exactly how strong hand does a hand need to be in order to be strong enough to, to check raise what kinds of hands make good bluffs and why um so you know i, I think it's better to start from the idea of like what kinds of questions do I need to answer for myself and then think about how can game theory help me answer those questions rather than like if you just start from a pie of salver output, I think it's pretty hard to translate that into something useful to you. So I think you'd rather you, you want to start from what are what are the actual problems that I experience as a poker player and my perspective on that comes both obviously actually playing poker myself, but maybe more relevant to the book is from you know, the, the coaching that I do and interacting with people on tournament poker edge and things like that. I think I have an idea also of people who are less game theoretically savvy than I am. You know, what are the situations that, that they encounter that they find as difficult? And then how can I help them use game theory as a tool to address problems that they're encountering in, in their games? Yeah, well, it's amazing watching those videos where I, you know, you always start off with the questions, which is, uh, you know, just a great tool for any teacher to say, this is the question we're going to try to answer today. And then this is the technique that we're going to use to try to arrive at an answer uh, to these questions. And then going forward, helping you think about similar questions going forward so that you can start to learn to use this tool to answer those questions for yourself and for me uh, at my level of understanding game theory and tinkering which is probably the best word to use <laughs> as it relates to my uh, experiences with uh, either card runners EV or Pio solver or what have you um, for me it's it's helped you watching your videos has really helped me to get better at understanding the output that the solver is giving me and and helping me to, to use that data to improve my general approach uh, to playing poker. So obviously that's the end goal, right? We want to get better at poker. Having a solid understanding of theory is useless if you don't know how to apply that theory to the actual game that you're going to go play. And so uh, I, I feel like you've really helped me make that bridge shorter. And I'm hoping, uh, beyond hope, that your book is kind of in the same uh, category, is it? Yeah, I, I think I mean it's it's definitely setting out to do the same kind of thing. I would say it's it's not like the, the those videos that you're talking about are um, more advanced. I would say than than the book. Um, the the book a, a decent amount of the book is really getting at some pretty core questions about poker. Like what does it mean to have a, a range advantage, or what does it mean to have more equity than an opponent, and how does that influence uh, betting and checking strategy? What kinds of hands are good? for betting, what is a polarized range? When does it make sense to have one? How do you make the most of it when, when you do have one? How do you deal with it when you don't have one and your opponent does? Um, so it's it, there, there's not as much specifics. Um, you know, that, that video that, series that you're talking about um, is probably getting more in depth on, on a single question. And the book focuses more on kind of like fundamentals of poker that honestly aren't even that no limit specific. Um, although I do, I mean, no limit is the is the game that I use consistently for my examples because it's the one that I you know play by far the most and the one that I think most people reading the book play by far the most. But um, the, the the concepts really are not 
that specific to to no limit it's just kind of basic poker stuff about what are the reasons for betting how do you i mean i guess choosing a bet size isn't relevant in in limit but you know how do you decide on on a bet size and why um when do you do more checking and when do you do more betting and how does the the threat of a raise influence um how much betting you're going to do both for value and as a bluff how do you take advantage of opponents who fundamentally misunderstand some of these concepts and so you know don't bluff as much as they should or don't mix in value bets or don't ever check strong hands or check too many strong hands um yeah so i guess i would say it's not as uh like really nitty gritty on details of specific board textures in the way that that video series is. But yeah, I, I mean, I look at both of them as, as part of the same project and the book is probably just like an earlier step in that journey. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I really can't wait to read it. I'm excited to get the answers to all those questions you just fired off in the last two minutes. <laughs> what does it mean to have a range advantage and how should I adjust my play accordingly? You know, all of that stuff. I think that, because many of us started in Hold'em tournaments um, before really understanding what these theoretical concepts even were, even those of us that have a pretty solid math background, like, you know, I'm probably above average in my math background, um, and kind of understood game theory as a general mathematical principle. Uh, you know, like, for example, back in the year 2000 when I was getting started learning No Limit Hold'em, I understood the idea of equilibrium just from other games that I'd studied. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, know, as many people know, um, my mother was a poker player and she was also kind of just attracted to games in general. And in my family, you don't just play games for fun. Like, you play to win. <laughs> and so we would really analyze whether it was chess or backgammon or mealborn or, of course, all the different kinds of poker, mostly seven-card stud. What is the theoretically correct uh, solution? And you know, I'm just understand. imagining your mom slapping your knuckles with a roller. Like, Clayton, you've deviated from the equilibrium. <laughs> you, call, you call that an equilibrium? That's not an equilibrium. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It, there was no actual knuckle slapping, but uh, <laughs> yeah, not too far off because we all wanted to win, and she would never let us win. If we won, we actually won, and usually because we got lucky. Um, but you know, with that kind of background, you learn to think of games in a different way. Like a lot of people say, "Oh, let's have some fun and play a game," and I'd be like, "Okay," but while we're playing that game, I'm going to try to analyze. You know, like if it's Scrabble, wouldn't I be better off putting this X on the triple letter score? And what word can I think of that will help me get that X onto that score on that square? You know, whatever the game was, I, I could never just enjoy it in terms of, oh, let's sit around, play a game and have a good time. Yeah. Um, yeah so which makes me fun at parties. <laughs> as long as everyone else at the party is as big of a nerd as I am, we're cool. <laughs> right. So, yeah. That's what alcohol is for. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even like quarters, like what's game theory for quarters, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, with all that in mind, uh, I still, when I first started playing poker tournaments, a lot of it was, you know, watch what they're doing on TV and try to copy it. Which, of course, is ridiculous because on TV you would only see a final table and the strategy at a final table, especially back then, the final tables were so short stacked and the structures, payout structures were so top heavy 
that you were seeing play, final table play, that if you went to your local casino and tried to uh, play the same way, it would just be uh, ridiculous and horrible um, strategy-wise. But nobody knew any better, so we were all doing it. And then as we started getting better and better, I think no one ever really picked up the pieces like telling us why. Right. You know, they told us you should continuation bet. If you were the pre-flop raiser, you should usually bet on the flop. But no one said why. And no one ever got into uh, on certain board textures. It's better to see bet smaller. And now we're kind of going back and filling in all those blanks that even early coaching sites had left um, blank. So that's why it's exciting. It's an exciting time for poker. I don't think that poker is dead or even close. Um, I think that No Limit Hold'em tournament strategy will continue to evolve, and people's understanding of theoretical concepts will only uh, help to fuel um, that evolution. It, it's not going to end the game. This game is not going to be solved for some time, believe me. Well, and it's also, I mean, so th this is actually the note that I that I end the book on. Like, this is kind of the, the, the conclusion is, is the hopeful note, much like what you're you're saying there. When when you look at a Pio Solver output and it shows, like I was saying, it's all these different mixed strategies, and then occasionally it'll show a certain hand, like this hand just bets 100% of the time, or this hand folds 100% of the time. The right way to look at that, I think, is not that you need to get those um, those proportions exactly right. It's more that the so the hands that are playing the pure strategies, the hands that are like always folding or always raising, those are hands that are really, really good for that particular purpose. <laughs> like if it's always <laughs> raising with a certain hand, like you should have a pretty damn good reason for not raising with that hand. If Piosover says always check raise when you flop middle set on this board, then you should always check raise when you flop middle set on this board, and you would need a really, really strong reason not to. But all those other places where it's mixed, which you know, if you've looked at Piosover outputs, it's mostly mixes. Like <laughs> especially on something like the flop, you see a lot lot of mixed strategies where it's saying do something 25% of the time and something else 75% of the time. Those are all opportunities for creativity and like that that's where the poker is played because what it's saying is that at equilibrium if, if it if you truly didn't know what your opponent's strategy or rather if, if your opponent were truly playing an, an equilibrium unexploitable strategy it wouldn't matter what you chose in those two situations those two things whether it's you know calling or folding have the same expected value that's the only time that you ever see a mixed strategy is when the two plays would have the same expected value at equilibrium the reason that they're mixed in the proportion that they are is that you don't actually know what your opponent's strategy is. And so if your opponent is bluffing too much, you want to make sure you're not folding too much. If he's not bluffing enough, you want to make sure you're not calling too much. Uh, you know, against the strategy, the mix is important to make sure that you're not being exploited by anything your opponent might be doing. But it also means that all those mixed strategies are extremely sensitive to what your opponent's strategy actually is. So any like any read that you have that says, for instance, my opponent bluffs a little bit too much, all those mixed strategies, those are the places where there's opportunity for your human brain to step in and say, well, what's the best play against this actual player? Like at equilibrium, the decision is extremely close and, and wouldn't even matter, actually. At equilibrium, the decision wouldn't matter. So um, there's a lot of room here for me to decide what do I think is the best play based on how I think my opponent is is playing. And that, so I mean, I find it, I mean, once you get over the, the terror of looking at one of those biosauber <laughs> strategies that looks so complicated, um, I actually I, I see a lot of room for, for creativity there because everywhere there's a mixed strategy. What I see is that's an opportunity for me to 
make a decision about what I think is going to be best against my actual opponent in this given situation. And you don't want to be, or you, at least you need to have a much higher threshold for, for choosing to do something, you know, quote, creative with something that is supposed to be a pure strategy at equilibrium. But when there's a mix, that's an opportunity for you to uh, to play poker, you know, <laughs> to, to, to make a read and try to play circles around your opponents and do all the things that, that makes poker fun and then that poker is really all about. So it's not about trying to turn everyone into GTO robots. I mean, I think that is what's happening at the very highest level. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, if, if, like for online, like, I mean, there, and there's a reason, like you don't really see online heads up limit hold'em cash games anymore. And that's because that is actually a game that's been essentially solved. Like, sure. like that, that, that game, you know, the, like there is a right answer and people more or less know what it is and it's not that hard to learn. And uh, I mean, the, like it is, that is happening. Um, there's a lot of reasons why multiplayer games are a lot more complicated than heads up games. There's reasons why no limit is a lot more complicated than limit. I mean, I, this is going to happen eventually. Like one day poker is going to cease to be an interesting game, but I think that that's a long ways off. And I think that, um, whatever, like the, the, those advances in artificial intelligence that are going to make poker an uninteresting game are going to so dramatically change like human society and civilization <laughs> that um, that's going to be like the least of our concerns. Definitely. It certainly will. We won't even be talking poker anymore. So much for that optimistic note. We yeah. Were. <laughs> <laughs> Robots are going to take over and the world will come to an end. All right, cool. Have a great world series of poker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one thing I really enjoy um, that you do is uh, you will give us ways to help clarify a concept, and you often use games and toys, as we call them. Um, are there examples of that in the book that we should know about, look forward to? Very much so, yeah. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people, I think, their introduction to, to game theory, and this is actually a thing that, that screwed me up, which is part of why I wanted to, to write this book, that kind of screwed up my initial understanding of game theory. Are you familiar with the Ace-King-Queen game? No. What is that? Interesting. Okay. So this is, for a lot of people, this is like their first introduction to, to poker and game theory. If you imagine a real simple game, there's only three cards in the deck. There's an ace, there's a king, and there's a queen. And each one of us is going to be dealt one of those cards and actually let me let me even put a, a further parameter on here one of us is always going to be dealt a king the other player is going to be dealt either an ace or a queen and the only objective of this game is to have the high card right so an ace is better than a king a king is better than a queen there's no draws there's no you know it's it's, it's barely even poker but um so you know if, if if there were no betting in this game if it were just a question of we're each going to turn over our card it wouldn't matter which player you were right the, the player with the king wins half the time when the other player gets a queen and loses the half the time that the other player gets an ace sure but if we're going to introduce betting into this game and you know the, the players are allowed to to bet i would say that one of these players will have an advantage in this game and i'm curious if you know which one it would be well, let's see. Yeah. I don't know. You better just tell me. I'm a little bit – my head is spinning a little trying to figure this out. <laughs> right, so this is the difference. You know, people, have, I'm sure, have heard the term polarized. The player who's getting either an ace or a queen um, is the player with a polarized range, meaning his range consists of either the nuts, which is an ace, or the nut low, the nut low which, right. is, which is a queen. And polarized ranges benefit from betting. Right? The, the player who can have either an ace or a queen, there's things that he can accomplish with a bet. When he bets an ace, he might get called by a king. When he bets a queen, he might make a king fold. 
um, the player with the king has no interest in betting, right? Because if, if you think about it, if you're holding a king, and this is my, I, I explained this very sloppily because I wanted to move on to a more complicated game. So I was trying to just like get, get this one out of the way quickly. But um, so if you're the player with a king and you bet, your opponent's never going to make a mistake, right? Either your opponent is holding the nuts and he's going to call your bet, or he's holding the nut low and he's going to fold your bet. So you, you can't really accomplish anything by betting with a king. And you'd rather not face a bet because if you face a bet, you have to worry about, um, you know, there's, there's a chance that you're going to do something wrong. Like you might call and your opponent might have an ace or you might fold and your opponent might have a queen. So um, unless the player who's, who has the ace or the queen just completely misunderstands the game and does something really boneheaded like folding an ace or, or calling a bet with a queen, you know, as long as he can avoid the most, um, you know, boneheaded mistakes that there are then that player should have an advantage in the game and in fact the game is simple enough that we can even figure out things like the optimal bluffing frequency for him and the optimal bluff catching frequency for the player with the king the, the game is so simple that it's it's pretty easy to wrap your head around um, those those things so the, the point of that game is to kind of demonstrate some real fundamental game theory concepts about what does equilibrium mean Indifference is a word that we haven't thrown around today yet, but that's an important one. Um, to, to, to kind of introduce these real basic game theory concepts about equilibrium and, and indifference and how to solve those things in, in a simple um, in a simple context. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because also if you have the ace or the queen, then you are the only player who knows what the other player has. Yes. So having that information is just as valuable as knowing what I have, obviously. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And okay. in real poker, you know, people worry about, oh, my hand was face up. Right. Right. And they're like, oh, after I check and call the flop, I'm afraid that my hand is face up. That's a that's a thing people worry about a lot. You so hear this that does all have the time. Some, yeah. It does have some corollary to real poker. The the and, and for, so a lot of people I think get introduced to to game theory with that game. The problem with it is that. The 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 um the basic strategy for it is simple enough that it's kind of hard to imagine someone making a mistake in that game. Like I mean, I, I put you on the spot, but you know, I, I think if if you had five minutes to sit down and, and think about that game, sure. you know, I, I think you would you would you know sort of like tic tac toe or something. Like if you never played tic tac toe before, you might make a mistake, but like pretty quickly you would, <laughs> you would figure out the right strategy for tic tac toe, and then it's not an interesting game anymore. Um, and so the, the problem in that game is that it's hard to see how playing an equilibrium strategy would ever give you an advantage because um, as long as your opponent doesn't make some like really, really boneheaded mistake, it just ends up being a break even proposition for both players. And that is that's people's I mean, that's another one of those myths about game theory that well, an equilibrium strategy is it's like that's a dumb thing to even aspire to because the best it can do is break even. I don't want to just break even a poker. I want to win. The truth is that equilibrium strategies actually can benefit when your opponent deviates from the equilibrium. They don't benefit as much as if you actively do things to exploit them, but you don't have to be playing an exploitative strategy in order to take advantage of your opponent's mistakes. So I I kind of invented as a strong word, but I I modified the ace-king-queen game in my book to look at a more complicated version of it where the, the deck consists of 10 cards, ace through five, and either player can be dealt either card from that deck. And that, I think, better approximates real poker situations because it's not just the nuts or the nut low or a hand right in the middle. Right? There's, there's gradations. 
And so we can ask questions like, well, okay, obviously we're going to value bet when we have the nuts. You know, if we're the last player to act in position, it's pretty trivial to bet when you have an ace. But you know, how how weak of a hand can you bet? You know, can we bet a king for value? Can we bet a queen for value? Can we bet a jack for value? You know, what about a ten? What are the best hands to bluff with? Um, what if we introduce raising into this game? Is that going? You know, how is that going to constrain players' ability to um, to bet, or how should that change? Uh, what are what hands are are bluffs are some hands better for bluffing with a bet but different hands are better for for bluffing when when you check raise um the, the, that game i think because it, it better models real poker i mean we still don't have the draw element of it which is a big thing that's missing but we can at least see there's different gradations of of hand value and in, now in, that's a game where if your opponent it, it's more realistic that your opponent might make the kinds of mistakes that you could profit from at equilibrium. You know, like no one, no one's going to make the mistake of folding the nuts to a bet, but they might make the mistake of folding the third nuts to a bet. And you know, we've seen that kind of thing in, in real poker. Sometimes someone folds a hand and you know, they fold it face up and you're looking at it and you're like, what the hell are you doing? That, like, <laughs> that guy could be value betting a worse hand than what you just folded. Right. You know, but so like people really do make those kinds of mistakes. It's pretty rare that you see somebody fold the nuts unless they, you know, this misread their hand or something. Sure. But, uh, you know, you see people miss value bets with hands they clearly should have value bet. You see them bluff with hands that had plenty of showdown value and they could have just checked them behind. Those are all concepts that come up in that um in that modified form of the game, the, the ace to five game, I cleverly call it. Uh, but I, I like that because it enables us to better see how, um, to, to, to see like realistic mistakes that show up in poker. There is always a solution. Like we used to try to analyze uh, theoretically the game that we used to call I Doubt It, where you tell somebody, you know, you have a certain number of cards in your hand and you say, I have two kings. And if the other person believes you or not, they say, I doubt it. I think that game is known uh, by a more uh, profane yeah. name <laughs> in other circles. But perhaps because my mother was teaching a three, four, and five-year-old, we called it, I doubt it. <laughs> but there was actually, uh, at some point, there is a solution. Um, I guess bluff. That, that's a bluffing game, right? You're pretending you have something you don't. And, and just like in poker, that's it's going to be a function of how much do you stand to win if your bluff is successful versus how much do you stand to lose if it if it fails and then your opponents you know their their strategy for doubting you is going to be based on making you indifferent to bluffing and your strategy for bluffing is going to be based on making them indifferent to doubting you exactly and then you're unexploitable so um with the time we have left i was curious since you did say you've been playing uh a bit at the venetian uh, if you had any hands you wanted to bring up unless there's anything else you wanted to uh, make sure everybody knows about your book. Um, let let me come back to that at the end, and I'll think if there's anything I want to. Okay. Conclude on that. I, I, there there was a hand that I want to make sure we get to because it, it came out like I thought of this while you were talking about um how we learn poker so much from imitating others and i would add to that also i mean i guess part of the thing that makes poker so frustrating also is that you can't really learn it from experience i mean you can and you will get better at it with experience but it's not you know like as humans we're so prone to well if something works do it again if it doesn't work <laughs> stop doing it like that's our that's our basic learning function as, as human beings and it really doesn't work well for poker because you can so easily make the right decision and lose or make the wrong decision and win you just you don't get reliable feedback and i think like that that's why i think learning from a theory perspective is so important because if you the other two ways which are either experience or uh imitation are both you know pretty 
it's it's difficult to apply to to new situations or they just they have their own problems with them yeah and and you know not letting the results fool you wait are you trying to say i'm not the 28th best player in the world (laughs) (laughs) didn't i title the episode of my my podcast that you were on i I think i called it the 28th best player in the world I hope you did. I did. If you did, I didn't notice that. That's amazing. Because I did. Because you've been on the show multiple times. It's like the first time someone's on the show, the title is just their name. Right. But then once you've been on the show multiple times, I have to get more creative about it. So I, I think I did. I definitely thought about it. Well, I appreciate the overestimation. <laughs> but anyway, this is the hand that came up because it was like you know even even I when I I mean I'm making a really conscious effort now to to guide my play with theory, but like you, you know, I started playing 15 ish years ago, seriously. And, um, I learned, there's a lot that I learned that was not from a theory perspective. Like when I started learning, honestly, the first, like, I mean, I guess mathematics of poker came out in 2007 or something. So I guess it was pretty early in my poker career that I read that book, but I don't know that I really understood it that well or put it into practice that well. I mean, it was probably 10 years before I really started to understand poker at a a theoretical level. Uh, And I had a lot of success with that. Yes. I mean, I have a lot of like ingrained just from experience and whatever, like I have an ingrained sense of what I expect from, from people. And a lot of it is exploited. Like there's situations where I'm just not accustomed to people bluffing and sometimes i have to catch myself when i'm playing against either different types of people that i'm used to playing against even people coming from like different poker communities like the norm in in northern europe is you know different than than the norm in the eastern part of the united states even the norm in like california i think is somewhat different than the norm on the eastern part of the united states but also you know people who actually have made a conscious effort to study equilibrium are going to find ways of bluffing in spots that i might not be used to people bluffing for instance sure. and that comes up in, in this end here so this is at uh, Venetian, we're at the 300, 500, 500 level, and uh, I have 15,000 chips, so I have like exactly 30 big blinds. A uh, player in early position who has all the trappings of like a pretty successful professional, like late 20s, well-groomed European, um, you, know, you, you, know, you know the guy. <laughs> oh, I got him in my head, yeah. He opens uh, under the gun two, I believe, to 1500 so he's got a, a 3x open he he covers me by a fair bit he probably has like 50k or something um and it folds to me in the small blind i have pocket eights so i have 30 big blinds i'm facing a 3x open from under the gun too i have pocket eights in the small blind i'm already curious what you think the right play is here because i was not sure yeah i'm not sure either um i know that there are some who feel like you should not be calling from the small blind um, but I think generally that applies to a late position open. I think with the early position open, with our stack depth, um, it's going to cost us, what, 5% of our stack to make the call? 10, no, 10%. 10, yeah, it's, it's 50, the race is to 1,500, I have 15K. Oh, you have 15K, sorry. Yeah. All right, yeah, so... Um, yeah, we, we can't just set mine. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we have to win more than just the times we flop a set. Right. So, yeah, we can't just uh, play this hand as, as you might, a small pair. Um, I could de- – <laughs> this is tough because, you know, your stack is awkward. Um, it's a lot to just jam into an under the gun too open. Yeah, I think it's too much to jam. Um, I think calling is probably okay except – 
you know, you've got to make, you got to have a plan for when you don't hit a set. You can't just check and fold every time. Um, if you three bet, yeah, I guess in your shoes, I might three bet fold. Um, I'm exploitable in the sense that he probably would shove ace king and then I end up folding a coin flip. For me, I'm, I might be a stronger pre flop player than I am a post flop player sometimes, especially with a shorter stack. So I would just put the pressure back on him. My concern with three batting is I don't think the hand's going to play very well if he calls. I guess like, essentially I don't think it matters that we have eights in this situation if we're making this play. You know, I, I think um, when you three bet, you're really just hoping that he folds, and in which case your cards aren't going to matter. If he calls, I don't think the eights are really doing much for you. You know, like you're not going to be happy holding eights out of position in a three bet pot. Well, that's true, but if you if you make it something like I don't know what's a reasonable size like four thousand or thirty eight hundred something like that. Yeah, let's do thirty eight hundred, and then uh, assuming the big blind folds, and then when he calls, uh, you know your SPR is going to be so low. Um, there are quite a few flops that you can uh, that you can play well with a low SPR. I mean. I think he plays him better, though. You know, like, just overcards in general play better in this scenario than pocket pairs do because he knows whether or not he hits his overcards. Like, you very rarely flop an overpair with eights. And even though, I mean, yeah, it's only one pot size better or whatever, you know, one and a half that are going in after the flop. But I think they almost always go in bad for you. You know, I, I don't think there's too many boards where he, you know, either incorrectly folds the winning hand or... Um, or incorrectly calls with a hand worse than yours. You know, like if, if the flop is like 10, 7, 2, yeah, you can put the money in with eights and you'll pick up the pot a decent amount of the time. But like when he does call you, I think you're going to be in pretty bad shape. Right. You won't induce many mistakes. Yeah. Right. Like I, I think he's going to realize equity very well in this situation, I guess. And and our, our, our equity realization will be substantially negative. Yeah. So, I mean, I think almost everybody calls in this spot. It just feels really weak to me. Um, I guess I wouldn't hate folding, but it just seems like your eights are way too strong to fold. Yeah, this is a really tough situation. I hate having this stack I'm glad size. to hear you say that because I, <laughs> I was also pretty unsure. I mean, I think like as we get deeper, I'm a little bit more comfortable calling. Um, and as we get shallow, I'm a little more comfortable shoving. I mean, I think like so. This is it is one spot where I think game theory can be helpful is like knowing how to navigate the kind of spots that you're going to end up in after the flop. Because essentially, what you're doing, I mean, you're you're playing a king in the ace king queen game. You're calling with a mostly condensed range. Your opponent is going to be able to bet a polarized range into you later, and you're going to have to make decisions about, um, you know, like how to deal with it when you have. Uh, your your like well, what ends up happening. So I, I call, and the flop is seven six three rainbow. Okay, so I do, in fact, flop an overpair. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the rare flop where pocket eights makes an overpair. Yeah. And, but I mean, we could just as easily imagine the flop is like queen seven deuce or something. You know, we're going to have to make a decision about when we face a bet. Um, essentially, assume that he's betting a polarized range. He's got you know, bigger pairs and whatnot for value. He's got bluffs. And we want to make sure that we're f- only folding a proportion of our range that's commensurate with with the amount of risk that he's taking on in other words if he bets half the pot we want to make sure that we're not folding more than a third of the time because you know if that that would make his bluffs just straightforwardly profitable like his cards wouldn't even matter if we're folding more than a third of the time so essentially what you do when you have this kind of like face up condensed drain 
is you look at the the pot odds that your opponent's bet offers to him and you think about how can you make him you know kind of indifferent to bluffing in this situation i mean that's a very simplified way of doing it but that's essentially the idea so i was trying to think about like what hands might i flat in this situation and it is going to be a pretty narrow range. I'm sure this isn't quite what a Pio Salva range would look like because there'd be a lot more mixing. But I think just because it's narrow doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be completely face up. And you know, part of the thing here is you want to try to have a calming range that it's not going to be obvious that any particular flop is like good or bad for you. So I was thinking like the hands that I'm most likely to call here would probably be pocket eights and pocket nines. I think bigger pairs I want a three bet, smaller pairs I want to fold. Um, I do a decent amount of flatting with pocket aces here. I think we're shallow enough that you don't really need to three bet to build the pot with aces. But once we get below aces, like kings and queens, I want to get some protection by three betting them. Um, and then some of the like good but not great suited broadways. So ace jack suited, ace ten suited, king jack, queen jack, jack ten. So there's like there's some suited broadways in my range. There's some medium pairs in my range. There's some pocket aces in my range. And I think that's going to be a range that it's at least not trivial to play against after the flop. How would you play sevens or sixes? Fold. Fold those. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, your range looks very much like mine. I think I would probably call, um, and I like flatting occasionally with aces with this kind of stack, especially from the small blind. Um yeah, I think your range looks a lot like mine. So you're getting a prize. Like you're getting compensated. You are putting yourself into a difficult spot, but that doesn't necessarily. It's not a deal breaker. Like you're you're getting a good price to put yourself into a difficult spot. I'm calling uh, twelve hundred. This is a this is a big small blind level also. So it's three hundred, five hundred. I already have three hundred chips in the pot. So I'm calling twelve hundred, and there's going to be four thousand in the pot when I call. So I'm getting like three to one on a call here. Um, now, I mean, there's other things like the big blind could overcall, the big blind could squeeze. There's other stuff that could happen, but like I'm getting a pretty good price in a spot where my hand probably has 50-ish percent equity against his opening range. So, you know, it's not like, like it's okay to be in a bad spot. I only have to realize about half of my equity to uh, to continue here. Right, and given that, and the fact that your hand strength is pretty good but not great anyway, I think it's yeah. I guess calling is fine. I was definitely a little tripped up. I hate playing this type of stack, and like a lot of the work I've been doing lately with solvers is trying to figure out how to navigate that that stack size. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so yeah, if you call, I guess we're hoping the big blind calls, right? <laughs> no, I don't think we want him in there. He's, he's taking a lot of equity away from us. I'd rather have his 500 chips dead in the pot than him coming in with like what'll often be two overcards to pocket eights. Okay. So, I mean, we'd like him calling with, like, 7-4 suited, but we don't really want him calling with uh, Queen-10 offsuit. Makes sense. So then what about this question? Is this a better flop for the small blind caller or the under-the-gun two? Great question. Um, so I did put this in Piasab. Obviously, we have to make some pretty strong assumptions about what his opening range might look like, and I don't want to. I don't think it's worth getting into those right now. But with the assumptions that I made, the equity is actually split split pretty close to evenly between us. I think I found that I, as a small blind, had like 52% equity, and he had like 48% of it or something on on this the seven six three rainbow flop. Um, so equity wise, there's not a huge advantage for either player. Um, what surprised me more, Piosolver actually wanted me to have a really robust dunk betting range here. It wanted me to bet something like 70% of my range. What that probably indicates is that I didn't construct the preflop range very well. Like, <laughs> I, I should probably have a slightly weaker preflop range than I do, according to 
pyro solver. Um, or I should have been a little bit more aggressive with some of these hands after the flop. Like either I should be calling with more hands or I should be three betting a little bit more of this stuff um, because we shouldn't really end up in a situation, I think, where like if I'm that incentivized to be aggressive, I, mean, I guess this is kind of a weird flop. Like this is it's an atypical flop because it's it's three low cards. But um, generally, if you see like a really high degree of aggression from the player who is passive on the previous street, it means that player probably shouldn't have been so passive. Right? Um but that's neither here nor there. So it actually thinks that this is a pretty, I mean, it's indifferent between betting or checking, but this is one of the hands that it bets at a pretty high frequency on the flop. And in general, it has a high flop betting frequency for the small blind. That's may have been my biggest error in the hand was not, uh, not betting the flop here, but I did check. Well, yeah, I was trying to think how I would play this flop. If I had just flatted pre, uh, I guess I probably would have checked as well. Um, and I would base my next decision on, because it is so close, uh, on this European gentleman's uh, demeanor, his sizing, and just kind of whether I got any type of feel for, is it a rainbow flop? I can't remember. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, so it's not like he's really protecting versus that many draws. Um, but I think that many players in his shoes holding an overpair would bet relatively small. I'm a little reluctant. If, if we assume that he's like a, a solver literate right. person, I'm, I'm reluctant to assume that he's going to give us bet sizing tells of that sort. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I, I'm not in the habit of get, giving people that much credit for being solver literate. <laughs> uh, because, I, I mean, the, the, I still think that the percentage of players uh, that are solver literate is a pretty small uh, percentage. I just don't For think sure. that many I, I think people the are doing the work. Of, of Europeans who are it's like spending summer in Vegas, which I, I mean, I don't know for sure that's what he was doing, but I think there's a good chance. Like Europeans who are who are coming here to spend a summer playing poker tournaments, I think are much more likely to be grinding. Yeah, they've done their work. Or at least watching, you know, videos that are Pio uh, informed, even if right. they're not doing that work themselves. Right. Okay. So neither one of us did what Pio says we should do, which is bet. So um, what happens when you checked? He bet half the pot, which also surprised me a little. I, I thought he might be kind of conservative in this in this spot and not want to do a lot of betting because I think it looks pretty strong for me to flat from the small blind here. But um, he bet half the pot. And by the way, so we have a stack to pot ratio of almost exactly three now. There's 4,000 in the pot and 12,000 stacks, and he bets 2,000. Yeah, this is a brutal. This is just a terrible hand. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously we need to think about these kind of hands because this won't be the last time this summer. It already happened in May. You're going to be in spots like this many, many times over, given the sizing. Uh, and I know you said that you you don't really read too much into the sizing because you don't think he's going to be giving anything away. Um, with that sizing, I would check raise. I would check raise and make it like three times his bet, and I would hate it when he shoves, but I would fold. I just don't think that he would shove anything uh, that I can't be. I, mean, I, don't, I don't hate that. I, I didn't consider it, but I don't necessarily know that that's wrong. I mean, so I was kind of thinking my options are either call or check raise all in, which is only like, it's like less than a pot size raise to check raise all in. Um, but, yeah, I could see actually, I mean, it's definitely an explosion exploitative thing to do but um 
I, yeah, I, I mean, you could be right that that's not a spot where he's going to find bluffs. Like, if, if we raise to 6,000, is he really going to you know, bluff jam for 6,000 more? No, you look um, so committed. I mean, there's just no way he's going to – I mean, I can't say no way, but it's a, it's, it's a rare player that's going to try to get you to fold now that you put in that much. I mean, it looks like you really like your hand. Had you – three bet pre-flop like i initially wanted to do then <laughs> you could very comfortably get it then you can check shove and just be like okay um i just feel like a lot of players holding a big pair would check back or bet smaller on this board it just doesn't feel to me like our eights are no good a lot but i'll find out the hard way when i check raise and then he shoves and i just you know if you can outplay me like that you deserve these chips anyway but I think that that's a good way to kind of decisively end the hand. And then you actually end up making a bigger profit than if you had led, as Pio suggested. Yeah. Well, so I'll say I, that's not an option that I gave to, to Pio, but Pio was indifferent between calling or check raising. All right. In. Right. Um, I, I opted to call. I'm not sure that that's the best play because I'm probably not going to play out the future streets as well as Pius Alvarez. So <laughs> I might be better off just like taking things easy on myself and then check raising all in. Um, but I called and the turn was an offsuit 10. So now the board is 10, 7, 6, 3. And we both checked. Okay. And then the river was another 7. So the final board 10, 7, 7, 6, 3, no flushes possible. Now we're looking at 8,000 in the pot and 10,000 in the effective stacks. Did you consider leading the turn at all? Donk, donk leading the turn? Did... Yes. Yeah. Um, it's possible that I should have done that as well. That's another, uh, uh, Sovereign again is indifferent between <laughs> between donking and checking. Um, I actually didn't put 9-8 in either of our preflop ranges. Um I'm pretty confident it's not going to be in mine. I don't know for sure whether it would be in his. He did have a large, I mean, he opened 3x in early position, which I think makes it a little less likely that he would have that. But um, I don't know that the 10 is all that significant of a card. Um, he probably has more 10x in his range than I do. Um, like, I don't know that I would have check called the flop with, you know, jack 10 to raise 10, even if I had a backdoor flush draw. So um, I don't know that the 10 is really, I mean, it's a good card in that it's not an ace, a king, or a queen. <laughs> it's, it's good for my range that way. But in terms of which players more likely to have a 10, it's got to be him. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, but you did mention some hands that would flat with the suited broadways that had 10s in them. So you do have some 10s in your range for sure. Well, the question is whether I would have called the flop with those, though. Right, 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 right. So, you know, like Ace-10, and I mean, again, Pio right, would. Right, like, right. Pio is sometimes peeling with, like, Ace-10 and a backdoor flush draw. Um, I'm but, not... But does sh- Andrew? <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, with Ace-10, yes, I would have. With Jack-10, I would not have. And I'm not sure if Pio was doing that. Okay. Um, yeah, with with the backdoor draws. Yeah, because we're getting so close to commitment as far as... I understand, like, your desire to try to control the pot size as much as you can, but... I just wondered if leading the turn would have made sense. Um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely a case for that, as does Bio. Yeah, okay. So now that we have paired the seven, so the final board again is seven, six... Ten, seven, seven, six, three. Oh, yeah, seven, six, three, ten, seven. Okay. So then, you know, his hand feels a lot like two overs to me. Um, so given that, I think it's going to be hard to induce a bluff. But I think you might be able to get a little value for you. I'm pretty confident our eights are good a lot now. Um, well, we could definitely own ourselves if we bet and lose to nines or something. But I mean, I, I feel like this is a, a value bet spot 
and I would make it like you know maybe just a third of the pot or maybe even a little smaller than that. Yeah. Hope you get the same page here. Yeah, get 2000. looked up by Ace King. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, so you bet two K. Does he call? He shoves. Ah, right, oh, that's an easy fold then. I mean, oh, come on. Really, I talked about it for a while. This is this again. Pio is indifferent, although. Um, this is this is so like this was even if you remember the way I introduced this hand was like my 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 background instinct is just like no one bluffs in this spot but I was like I don't know that this guy doesn't know how to find the the bluffs in this spot I mean I never really have a or actually it's not impossible I can have ace ten here um, so you know, I I do have a one hand that's a snap call but other than that like eights and nines are, are the same hand in this spot um, and I never had so it's like ace ten are my snap calls my snap folds are gonna be um, like other backdoors that I floated with, which I guess would just be like King Jack suited and maybe H. I don't. I don't think I turn H Jack into a bluff though. So I guess yeah. Now that I think about it, I guess actually King. I don't really have a lot of folds either. I mean, I guess like this is a spot where my hand felt really face up. Like I think it really looks like I just have eights or nines here. Maybe occasionally I have like quads or tens full, but uh, or aces, I guess. Um, well, Andrew, this, even if you do appear to have <laughs> even if you do appear to have a face up pocket eight does, pocket he nine, does he really think you're going to fold it after you after you bet it on the river because what is he representing you know i mean i think that he's slow played a big pair that's um, fair. yeah so uh and that's fine the way he played it you know he, he wanted to try to get two streets of value yeah I, I think he played it great i mean if he did if he does have like i mean pio thinks he should even play like queens or jacks this way sometimes i think most people want to bet those on the turn because they're worried about i mean probably irrationally worried but worried about overcards coming and that you know aces i think is maybe a hand that people are more like like they're more comfortable slow playing that or you know, pocket tens where they, they turn a, a set um but you know, in, in theory he's supposed to check some 10x on the turn he's supposed to check some kings and queens and then you know he has those those are all jamming for value on the river yeah yeah even yeah well so when you bet and then he shoves yeah i just um i don't know i guess i i guess i see your point that if he is a gto bot from europe um he would have some bluff shoves because as you mentioned it's pretty there's a great chance that you have eights or nines (laughs) yeah and just like any time that he's shoving for value he's gonna have some buffs yeah. yeah, so it's all balanced and everything. Because I mean, he, he might, like, the, like, if we try to make an exploitative assumption such as no one ever bluffs in this spot, then it's really good for him to bluff in this spot. Like, if he gets <laughs> one step ahead of us in that game, and that's my concern when I'm playing against, you know, either very pio savvy people or just, you know, I don't play online poker that much anymore. And people who are playing online, can't, like, if he is, you know, in, in Europe, you know, where he can just play online all the time, like, he's he has more recent experience than, than I do. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to you know, make too strong of a exploitative assumption against someone who you know, seems good in that way. And that's understandable. And that's probably the correct way to approach it rather than opening yourself up to exploitation as I often do. Um, but I think that given that he can probably call and win sometimes with ace king or, or whatever other two overcards he might have that include an ace. Yeah, I, I think his bluffs here are more like queen-jack kind of stuff. That, you know, that has no chance of beating a bluff. Right. And it was also not a good bluffing candidate on the turn. Right, right, right. So, yeah, that's right. So I think that's a pretty small part of his overall range, um, the queen-jack type of hands, um, compared with everything that he could be doing this for value. And Yeah, 
I think you might be right that the only hands he's bluff shoving might be kind of that type of hand, like a queen jack. So, or, I mean, I think King Sultan have really showed on value here either. I mean, he can't call. I, he, if he has like King Ten, or no, King Ten is a pair. If he has like King Queen, even I don't think he can call that with it. So, um, I mean, he, I think he has plenty of hands that he that would be very happy to pick up this pot <laughs> with a shot. It's not like he's short on bluffing candidates. Queen Jack, um, King Queen. King Jack, Queen Nine, Queen Ten, or you know, Queen Ten's a pair. Okay, um, yeah. If he's opening Queen Nine and Queen Ten from early position, wait, wait, you're right. Yeah, Queen Ten does have a pair. Yeah, yeah I'm not, I'm not counting. Nine suited, King Nine suited. I'm not counting that many. Uh, so I, I guess for me, it's a, it's a pretty easy fold. But again, I, I'm admittedly uh, a very exploitable player. So. Yeah, I, I thought it was a tough fold. I, I did eventually fold, um, and Pio kind of agrees that it's indifferent, although this is a situation, like, because this isn't really a spot Pio ends up in much, like, it, it because it does so much donking the flop and so much check-raising the flop, and it sometimes donks the turn, like, by the time we get here, we've gone down so many, like, rarely used forks of, of the game tree that it's hard to have a lot of con- like i don't think essentially i think pius Alvarez isn't simulating the situation very many times so it's not a spot where it's its answer is going to be a, like if, if you run pius Alvarez for a longer amount of time you might get a better answer to this but um because it's a it's a spot that comes up rarely it's i don't think it's as meaningful what the what the outcome is here it has a very small sample size for arriving at its outcome here essentially right because it doesn't end up here yeah i guess i want to check raise the flop um, I, I think that's that's probably, if I could change one thing about this hand, I think that's what I would do differently. Is just check raise the flop. Yeah, because then pretty much the hand's going to be over on the flop either way. Like if, even if he just flats that check raise, I'm probably going to, you know, play my hand well after that because I just don't see him doing that with, you know, the king jack, king queen. Maybe he does it with ace king, but I doubt it. I would be surprised if he only ever calls a check raise with hands better than eights um so when you check raise so he's betting you know there there's four thousand in the pot he bets two thousand you're raising to six thousand there's twelve thousand in the pot essentially you're risking six thousand to win six thousand when you check raise which means that he shouldn't be folding more than half the time unless he's you know like or it's going to be profitable for you to bluff if he's folding more than half the time. He might choose to make an exploitative read and to say you know this guy's never bluffing here um I don't see why you shouldn't be. You know, I don't see why you wouldn't want to pick up and do this with like Jack Ten suited or something. Especially if you assume that he's going to fold every time he doesn't have a pair. Then you know, making this kind of raise with Jack Ten suited would be very profitable. Of course. It so would. when he's when he's peeling with Ace King, it's not just based on like implied odds of hitting an Ace or a King. Right. Ace King will be good some of the time when I check raise there. So uh, I I think I mistakenly thought that the flop bet was fifteen hundred. So if his flop bet is... No, that was, that was, no, pre-flop, we were talking about, it was 1,500, and you wanted to raise to 3,800. Oh, On the right. flop, you bet 2,000. Oh, right, right, And right, then right. you were talking about raising to 6,000. That's right. Yeah, this is my brain having a lot of different numbers swimming around. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have the advantage of looking at all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but hopefully the listeners have been able to follow. Yeah, all right. Well, I mean, I think it's a good fold. Um, P.O. is indifferent, but I don't know if P.O. really considers. And by the way, I go like you, but I switch between P.O. and Pio. I don't know what, how to pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, if it's indifferent, then maybe it's better to just preserve your chips since they're worth more. 
that, that was the other thing that that aired me on the side of of folding. Now, in truth, you know, he he could construct a bluffing frequency that takes into account that I have a preference for for folding, and so he ups his bluffing. Like, it's not like he can't account for ICM in his uh, you know, bluffing frequency or whatever. But of course, yeah, I do tend to use something like that as a tiebreaker. It's just like, and it's just, I just kind of have a rule for myself, like over the course of my career, and that not necessarily true against this exact opponent, but like over the course of my career, if I just folded every time I was tanking on the river, I'd probably be richer than I am now. <laughs> well ahead, yes, well ahead. <laughs> not a lot of game theory behind that. It's more psychology, but. Yeah, no, I mean, the fact is people don't really bluff as much as they should. And, you know, when we pay off river bets, it's usually incorrect to do so. If it's close, usually folding is correct. Like you say, maybe not against this particular European professional, but, uh, you know, generally. My main concern was whether this is a hand that's supposed to be a pure call. Like, if this is a hand that's indifferent between calling and folding, I'm fine with folding it. My concern was, is this a hand that Piasavar would pure call at equilibrium? And I'm happy to see that it wasn't. Because if you remember me saying, like, that's really where you have the most discretion. Against weaker player, like, there's plenty of people at the World Series of Poker where I would be happy pure folding this, even if it is supposed to be a pure call. I just don't think this is a player that I want to do something that exploitative against. If it's just a matter of erring on the side of folding when I'm indifferent, I'm, I'm happy doing that, which is what it turned out to be, given my tentative very tentative assumptions about his pre-flop range well i have to say andrew i think you picked a perfect hand um to discuss because you know we spend the first half of the episode talking about theory and then you're actually applying that theory to how you approach a difficult spot that you were in with your eights so i mean that's what i'm trying to improve and i'm sure that many of our listeners are also in the same boat uh just trying to improve our ability to apply what the solvers are trying to teach us to the actual practice of playing in a hold'em tournament it sounds like people to see with the book is like how is this how is where does the rubber meet the road like how is this stuff i mean theory has such a bad connotation to it it's like well there's theory and then there's practice you know and they're just you know so like how does this actually help you make the like the real decisions that you're going to face not just like getting out of the world of you know the ace king queen game i mean I, i find that stuff interesting but it's hard to translate that into real poker decisions so i try to go back and forth and there's a lot of stuff in the book that you know presents you after after we do a section that's very theory heavy then i try to put up some real world examples and talk about how do we take those concepts out of this theoretical game and put them in the context of an actual hold'em situation that you could encounter yeah well thank you so much as always for uh you know sharing your insights with us tpe nation is very grateful to you you're very active in posting videos um there's another series you have out where you basically do a, your Gus Hansen impression and go every hand revealed all the important <laughs> spots you played in a big uh, $2,500 bracelet event um, in which you did quite well last summer. 17th um, best poker player in the world, my friend. Yeah, that's right. And don't <laughs> you forget it. <laughs> um, and, and that series has also been extremely um, useful to me as I'm trying to do my study and prepare for the types of, Tournaments we'll be playing uh, this summer. And also, you know, you're active on the forums. You answer questions. And uh, I hope that everyone who is uh, listening to this podcast has joined TPE by now. You can do so for as little as $25 a month, which is uh, a bargain no matter how you slice it. Um, And certainly get your copy of Play Optimal Poker by Andrew Brokus which is now available, you mentioned, on Amazon. But where else can they find that book? 
Yeah, this is actually a little tricky. Um, so the, the, if you want a paper book, Amazon is the only place to get that. Um, if you want an ebook, uh, if you the Kindle version, you can get from Amazon, of course, as you typically get Kindle books. If you want other versions of an ebook besides Kindle, so if you happen to have, say, a Nook, um, you can get those at knitcast.com, which is Nate and my site where we sell various podcast-related products. So at knitcast.com, only the ebook is available, but you'll get an ebook in several different formats. You'll get a PDF, you'll get a Kindle format, and you'll get a, um, I think it's .ebook or something. It's whatever the, uh, the more standardized ebook format that other readers besides Kindle are able to read. So if you buy the ebook at nickcast.com, you'll get three different versions, including a PDF. If you buy the ebook on Amazon, you'll get only the Kindle version, and then Amazon is the only place to get a paper book. Excellent. And of course, guys, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to and listen to the Thinking Poker podcast. It's kind of like the TPE podcast, except the host actually knows how to play. So <laughs> you should listen to Andrew and and of course, his uh, his partner, Nate Mavis. Um, they have a great podcast where they uh, interview poker players, maybe not just whoever won the most recent WPT uh, Oof, title for 28th yeah yeah whoever got 28th or sometimes you even talk to people who are not poker players which are some of the episodes that i've enjoyed the most just kind of people that are poker adjacent i think a good strategy for listening to the show would be to go through the archives look for names you don't recognize and listen to those episodes because not that we're like i mean we have had some really good interviews with name people but you know like if we have mike mcdonald on the podcast you know why we're having mike mcdonald on the podcast he's like a big deal poker player which is and that was a great show by the way it was um but if you see a name that you don't recognize like there's a very good reason we brought that person on the show like we know that you don't recognize them we're sort of taking a hit like obviously we get more listens when we put a big name person on there so like our essentially our threshold for bringing on somebody that you've never heard of has to be higher than for you know, bringing like you know, like we're not saying no to to the mike mcdonald's of the world no matter how bad i mean his again his was very good i'm not using him as an example for this reason. <laughs> yeah, but, why do you um, hate mike mcdonald <laughs> because <laughs> he's successful and good looking i uh, know i hate him too <laughs> um but yeah on that note you know ho hopefully or I, I would enjoy i don't want to put you on the spot uh if you and i get a chance to sit down in person that was one of the highlights of last summer for me so i would love to uh record for for one or both of us uh in person together at some point this summer yeah i'll make you a deal whoever makes day seven of the main event <laughs> <laughs> will be uh, the guest on the Other Ones podcast this summer. Well, I look forward to coming on your show. <laughs> I look forward to having you. Andrew Brokus, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Definitely go out and get his book by whatever means you prefer, whether it be nickcast.com or on Amazon, where you can actually pick up a paper copy if you prefer that, uh, nickcast.com or on Amazon. And follow him on Twitter at Thinking Poker. He's a great follow. Andrew, thanks so much for uh, coming on the uh, podcast today. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. See you soon, buddy.
Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, whoa. 